back in the fall, we had Advent, and then we had some freestanding sermons uh, earlier in January. Uh, but here we're starting an eight-week series in Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, if you would go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're doing an eight-week series of Genesis leading into Exodus. So this is, uh, we're going to fly through Genesis. As you know, Genesis is a very large book uh, with uh, a whole lot of text and a whole lot of really good things in it. Uh, but we broke it down into eight, uh, eight sections. Uh, we have creation today, we have fall next week, and then we're going to go through the patriarchs and the Tower of Babel. And then we're going to set up our tent in Exodus for a while. So we're going to crawl our way through there. So we're looking forward to that. Um, but... Before we get started, I want to go ahead and pray for us as well, just as we get started uh, in the text and in the sermon. Father God, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you so much for this time that we were able to come together to worship you, that you are the creator of all things, and that you have made all things, that you have made us, uh, and that you are glorified in all that you've created. Help us to see and understand that uh, this morning. Help us, uh, I mean, stir our affections for you, Lord, as we look at your goodness and your kindness uh, and all that you've done in creation and all the things that you've made. Help us know and understand that you're the good giver of all good things and that we can look to you in all things. Help us embrace these truths, a lot of which uh, we're probably familiar with, uh, but help us see in a fresh light uh, these truths. Help us come to you, Lord, uh, and worship. Uh, help us all worship you during this time wholeheartedly and help us go from here lord glorifying you and all that we do we love you we praise you we thank you for your grace in christ's name we pray amen amen all right so if you're in uh, genesis uh, we are going to start in genesis 1 chapter 1 or yeah verse 1 so if you would look at your bibles uh, we're going to read the first five verses it says this in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, as we get started, and as we read this first uh, initial five verses of the Bible, the, the foundation, the start uh, of of the scriptures, of what God has said to us. And what we believe about that first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, will tell us a whole lot about our worldview. So the way we see and understand the world all comes down to, ultimately, to, or at least starts with, how we view this, the beginning of all things, right? We're all interested in origins, the beginning of things. We all have these questions of, how, how did we get here? What is our purpose in life? Who are we in light of everything around us, right? What's, what's the point? Um, and the way that you answer that question matters because it affects everything else, which hopefully we'll see as we continue through today. Uh, but just think about it. If you have the worldview like, like we do from the scriptures as Christians, that God created the heavens and the earth, that affects the way you view children, it affects the way you view marriage, it affects uh, the way we view our purpose, well, you know, why are we here? Like we all have that innate uh, desire to know and want to know why are we here? What in the world is the point of waking up in the morning and going to work or going and doing whatever it is that we're doing? We want to know, we want to have purpose. The answer to that question ultimately varies, right, around the world. It varies in the way people answer that, but we all have that desire. 
Now, it also, you, we'll go through the rest, but do you see my point? Like, we're all interested in it. Marvel movies. Who's seen at least one Marvel movie over the last, like, decade? Okay, pretty much everybody in here, if not everyone in here, right? So, with the Marvel movies, right, there's like 20-something of these things that came out over, like, the last, I think, 14 years. Started 2008, in case you're wondering, with Iron Man. All the major characters got an origin story. Like, there's some that didn't, right? But all the major ones got their first movie that showed how did this person come to be in the universe, and it made millions of dollars, if not billions, depending on the movie, right? We all want to know, well, how did this thing start? How did this, be, you know, whatever. It's fantasy, right? But we're still interested in it. There's tons of examples that can be given from that, but we all want to know, how did this start? Children want to know, right? Where do babies come from? Do they just appear out of nowhere, right? I mean, just little kids ask that question. You don't tell them to ask it. It just comes up. They just want to know, where do they come from? And you're like, how, how are you asking that question? You're not big enough to ask that question. And then you divert the answer, right? Um, but anyway, I think you get the point. So, so as we work through this, as we look at this text, this sermon's a little different than the other eight week or the other seven weeks that we're going to do in Genesis because here today we're going to do, I'm going to do my best to help us camp out in the garden. So in other words, we're going to camp out in this pre-fall time period and really see and hopefully understand uh, God's creation and all that he did in it and his goodness in it uh, so that we can really embrace that as we go along. And so what we're going to do, we're going to go back to these first five verses that we read. We're going to start to unpack them a little bit more. And the way we're going to do it is I'm going to ask a question, and then we're going to work our way through it. Does that make sense? So the first question is, who created all things? Now, there's an assumption there, right? Somebody created everything. But regardless, who created all things? Who is this being that created the heavens and the earth? And so we look, look back with me. Uh, at verse, uh, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So the question is, who is this God? How do we understand who this God is who's, who's saying that he created all things? Do we start with he is creator? The answer to that is no. He's not first and foremost creator. He is a creator. He did create all things. But we must first and foremost start with the fact that God is trinity, that God is one God, three distinct persons, each person fully and completely God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You're saying, okay, how do we, how do we know this to be true? Again, look back with me at, at verse, uh, we're going to read it again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. We see God the Father initiates. We see the Word of God come forth. And we see the Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the waters, executing God's commands. Right? There's one will of the Lord being executed, one God, three distinct persons. And the way we know for sure, right, that the Son of God was there and present is John 1. If you have your, if you have your Bibles, turn, turn, hold your place in Genesis, but turn to John, uh, the Gospel of John. It's about three-quarters of the way through your Bible. Um, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, I want you to see this uh, with your own eyes from, from the text. So I'll give you a moment to get there. But we, as you turn there, though, we have to make sure we start with the fact of who, who is this God that we're talking about. He is Trinity, 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit, yet one God. All right, so John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now look down at verse 14. And the word became flesh. And the word became flesh. And these first couple verses that we read initially in John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and it continues on unpacking this. It's paralleling Genesis 1.1. It's, it's showing the language and the way it's written is all paralleling that to make us think and look back and see that when God spoke, the Word of God went forth, the Son was present, the Holy Spirit was present, and the Father was initiating in creation. Gabe read Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I would encourage you to read that again at, a, at another time um, later because that also gets at this, right? That Christ was present and all things were made in him and through him in creation. And so though we must start there. We must start with our understanding of, of the scriptures with, with that understanding of God as Trinity. Another thing to, to think about, again, in understanding who is this God who created everything, Michael Reeves, has, Michael Reeves is a theologian who has a really helpful quote in thinking about how, uh, of who this God is that created all things and how we relate to him. I think it'll be on the screen, but if not, it says this. Since God is, before all things, a father and not primarily creator or ruler, all his ways are beautifully fatherly. It is not that this God does being father as a day job, only to kick back in the evenings as plain old God. It is not that he has a nice blob of fatherly icing on top. He is father. All the way down, thus all that he does as father. That is who he is. He creates as a father and he rules as a father. And that means the way he rules over creation is most unlike the way any other God would rule over creation. Now, again, we talked about origin stories earlier, right? That other religions, other, you know, secular, you know, humanist ideologies, different ones come up with their own view of how things started, right? There's always been that. Any religion you look at has some sort of explanation or attempt at an explanation for how things started. Well, we have the truth, right? We have the one true God, the truth of how things were created, and none of the other ones that are false even come close to the magnificence and the glory of what our God has done. None of them are saying anything remotely close to what the Lord has done in His creation and the goodness and the kindness that comes from it, let alone we haven't even got to the beauty of the gospel yet and all that He did there. So not only do we have the truth, but the truth that we have is far superior than any other explanation that anyone else can come up with uh, with their own mind, right? That we all have ability to be creative and to make things up and to think of things, right? Or to come up with some kind of solution, but none of them even come close to the goodness of the truth that we have in the scriptures from Genesis 1. So, who is God? We're going to continue to unpack that a little bit more. But the next question that we're going to look at is, when did God create? And I'm not going to spend much time here, but when did God create all things? So there's essentially two camps, right? There, within Christianity at least, that 
there's either young earth creationism, which is the earth is about 6,000 years old, or there's the old earth creationism um, viewpoint that it could possibly be much older than that. Uh, I'm just, all I'm going to say on it is, regardless of where you stand on it, we can both you know, agree and move on, but the reality is, do you believe that the scriptures are supreme and that the, the scriptures are infallible and inerrant, and ultimately, do you believe that God created the heavens and the earth? If you check those boxes, perfect. We're good. Let's keep going, right? Um, so at the end of the day, we can read Scripture plainly and see what it says, and we can move on from there, and that's, that's that. At least that's my position on it. So um, I'm not going to take one other than that. So when did God create? I don't know, but he created all things, and he is good, and we can rest in his presence on that topic. Next question, how did God create? So how did he do it? You know, did you go to Home Depot? Did you get some Legos, some eternal celestial Legos found from somewhere, like building blocks, Lincoln Logs? Those things are expensive, by the way. I saw them in a toy store the other day. Um, I was like, wow. Anyway, how did he do it, right? How did he build all this stuff, right? How did, he, how, how did, how did God execute this creation that he had, or that he has, that we have, that we exist? We're here, right? He spoke, and it was. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. You can say it. There was light, right? He spoke. And we're not going to read the rest of Genesis 1 uh, as far as the middle portion. We're going to skip down at the, to the end here in a minute. Um, but if you were to keep reading, and I hope that you, you will maybe later today or later this week, he continually says, and God said, and so it was. And God said, and then it explains what it was. And it keeps going. He said, and it was. The other part of this, right, it's that simple. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and then all the rest. The, the, think of it this way. Well, if I asked you which, um, which person or which office you could say is the most powerful person or office in the world, who would you say? You can answer out loud. Well, what's generally understood the last couple of decades? President of the United States, POTUS, thank you. Yes, good job, Michaela, and everyone else who said something but wasn't too confident, I don't think. But that's generally understood, right? I mean, regardless if it's true or whatever, that's generally the understood thing the last several decades. The President of the United States is the most powerful person in the world. Regardless of what you think of whoever the President is, that office is viewed that way, at least right now. Um, but I say it to say that even the most powerful person in the world can write decrees in forms of executive orders or in forms of speaking on camera or whatever, but at the end of the day, how often do those things actually happen in the way that he intended? And if they do, how long does it take? It takes years for the bureaucracy to get things rolling, and then even then, a fraction of what was the intent comes out of it, and then there's all these problems. That's the most powerful person in the world, right? Again, whichever president you want to insert there is fine, but that's the reality of it. Or they say it and then a courts knock it down and then that's the end of that, right? So even the most powerful person in the world can speak and try to get something rolling, but he's extremely limited in what can take place. God, on the other hand, spoke everything into existence out of nothing. That's the key word. How did he do it? He did it out of nothing. He spoke, there was nothing, or there was nothing, he spoke, and then there was. How do we know this for sure? 
Romans 4, I think it'll be on the screen. Romans 4, 16 and 17 says this. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Uh, This is the key point who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. There was nothing other than God, and then he spoke, and then it was exactly the way that he wanted it. And then if you keep looking again throughout that chapter 1, he would speak, it was, and then he looked at it and would declare it good. And it was good on that day. And then he went to the next day and the next day. And it was good. And it was good. And we can rejoice in that. Now, finally, we get to, so he created all things out of nothing. And he spoke it into existence. And, and really, the, this, this portion of, of studying and preparing for this is something I think we all have heard, we're probably familiar with. It's probably not, not new. But regardless, as I was preparing for this, part of my frustration with myself was it just, I don't know if it's just because I've known it for so long or what, but it's just like, why, why is this not amazing me more? That he spoke it into existence out of nothing. There was nothing. And then there was something. I mean, our brains can only comprehend so much of that. But the whole time I would keep looking at this, and it's like, why does that not, not amaze me more than it does? Because it should. Like, I want it to. It, sh- it absolutely should. That is amazing. Like, no one can come close to anything remotely close to that and I think it just we just passed by it or maybe it's just me I don't know I might be the only one but regardless part of me it's the whole really it was two weeks because I was supposed to preach this last week so it's two weeks that was really looming over but regardless that this should amaze us like we should get excited God created all things out of nothing no one else can do that we gotta go to Home Depot and they might not even have what we need and then you can't build it <laughs> then what right like it should be exciting to us. And I don't know what it is that's dampening that ability to see and understand that. I don't know if it is Marvel movies that we see wizards on TV, you know, making things happen. But like, that's all fake, right? It's, it's all made on a computer. It's not real. So I don't know if that's dampening our ability to see this or what. But part of my just, just opening up about it, it was just like, why is this not blowing my mind more? Of just thinking about how that looks. But regardless, we'll, we'll move forward on, on this subject. He created all things out of nothing. He spoke it into his ex- existence and declared it being good. All right, last question, and this is going to be the umbrella question that we work our way through. So there's going to be a lot in here. This is the kind of the meat and potatoes, so to speak. Um, good American diet, meat and potatoes. Um, what is the purpose of creation? What is the purpose of creation? So in short purpose of creation is to magnify and manifest and display the glory of God in all things. That's what it's for. That's what God created all things for his glory. He created us for his glory. And that is a good thing, right? Sometimes that can sound a little funny of like, so God made all things for himself? He made it all for his glory? Is that really like, sounds a little, uh, you know, like it's true from the scriptures and we're going to look at that in a minute. But sometimes I can feel a little weird, right? Well, so 
if you want to really dive into that, read John Piper, because he's got all kinds of stuff that's going to go a lot better than what I'm about to say. But regardless, if you want to take a deep dive into that, he has like a whole book dedicated to it and all his other ones talk about it at some point. But in short, that is great for us that that is the case, that God made all things for his glory and made us for his glory because God is the only being or only thing in the universe that can satisfy the desires that we were made to have. We were made for God. So the only, we all have the innate desire in us for something more. We all have something in us that we desire to see glory. And everything that we choose in this life that's not the Lord is always going to leave us unfulfilled. It's never going to satisfy. We're always going to be thirsty if we keep going after things other than the Lord. But when we do turn to the Lord and when we are His and when we do place our faith in Him and trust in Him in all things, then that thirst is satisfied. We will get to drink and we won't be thirsty. He will satisfy the desires that we have because we were made for Him. So ultimately, God making all things for His glory, making us for His glory, is good because that is the best thing that can happen for us. It's for us to trust in Him and to embrace Him and to embrace that glory and seek to glorify Him in all that we do. That is the best thing possible for us. If we put that in anything else, it's going to be detrimental to us because we're not going to fulfill our purpose and we're going to be sinning against God, which ultimately is going to lead to death if we don't stop apart from Christ, which is horrible, right? That is not good, not what we need. The Lord is who we need and His glory, but we should be on display in all things. C.S. Lewis famously has said, and it's been quoted a lot over the years, but he said this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that's getting at that idea. All of us feel it. All of us have it. We were made to have it because we were made for God. And when we're separated from God in the fall, we long for it to be fulfilled. And even after uh, becoming... Um, a son or daughter of God, we're still, it's already but not yet, right? We're still thirsting after the Lord, but only He can satisfy it. Nothing else can. So when we seek to satisfy ourselves in work and a spouse and a future spouse and kids and the hope of kids, sex, entertainment, sports, food, it's not going to fulfill us up. All of us know this. We know it to be true no matter how much hope that we place in it, is going to leave us thirsty. And all of those things are tempting us to want to place that there, but it's not going to work. All right, so back to, to God's glory. So 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, There is one God, the Father, from whom... Or excuse me, let me reset. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. From whom are all things and for whom we exist. We exist for God. Romans 11, 33-36 makes it clear as well. It says this, O the depths Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? 
Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. To him be glory forever in all that we do. Let the glory of the Lord fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And let us continue going. First, one more. First Peter 2.9 says this. But you are a chosen race. So I'm about the people of God. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Notice what Peter is saying. Well, you don't have it in verse 9. Turn there. First Peter 2.9. I want you to see it. Take a moment. Turn there. I want you to see this. All right. First Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So in other words, you are God's people. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, right? So we are God's people. And, and then what, right? So what's the next step? Great, that's good to know. I mean, for real, I mean, that's, that's great. But, but, then, but then what, right? So then it says, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. In other words, you can say, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of the one true God who created you, who created all things, and has now redeemed you in Christ. That is, that is what we're doing. That is what we're here to do, is to glorify God, that we may go and proclaim the excellencies of our great God in all things because we are his and he is good and it is our purpose. So what are some implications of this, right? So made the claim our purpose in life is to glorify God. The purpose of creation is to glorify God and we uniquely stand above creation and we are the pinnacle of, of his creation, which we're going to look at uh, the rest of chapter one. Uh, but what are some what are some practical things uh, to live this out? So we want to live to the glory of God. What else does Genesis 1 and 2 have to tell us to help us do that, to help us live faithfully and to glorify him in all things? I'm not going to cover everything exhaustively in these two chapters, but we're gonna, we have four points. So I know, Baptist, three points. You know, I'm, I guess I'm getting a little squirrely getting four, but we got four points this morning. So they don't alliterate. It's okay. You're welcome. Um, number one, we are made in God's image. We are made in God's image. So let's think about the implications of this. So uh, verse 26. So go back to Genesis. Uh, go back to Genesis 1 if you're already there. We're going to kind of scroll down or look down on your paper. We're going to be in uh, verse 26. We're going to start in verse 26. So towards the end of chapter 1, it says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Verse 31. And God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now there's a lot here, a whole lot here that could be unpacked. We're going to only scratch the surface a little bit. But notice at the end, so God, this is on the sixth day. It's the sixth day is concluding. Seventh day is going to rest. Um, it was very good. I mentioned earlier after he created on each day, he said it was good. It was good. It was good. Now that he made man on the sixth day, he declared it to be very good. Man, us, humans, Adam and Eve, was the pinnacle of God's creation. I mean, that that was the pinnacle, right? Because it says we are made in God's image. Let us make man in our image, in verse 26. We are made in God's image. We stand above the rest of creation because we are made in God's image which is great. It's wonderful. We're not just another creature out there. We uniquely display the image of the one true God that no other part of creation displays. Now, the rest of creation does glorify God. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, which is true, right? When we go out in nature and we see something just beautiful that God has made, it, it points us to God. It, it helps us to see and understand God and to worship Him in, in that moment because we see what He has done. It, it does, the nature, the animals, all that God's created does glorify Him, but man uniquely does so because we are made in His image. It was very good. And so, so thinking through this, so theologians like to go about, you know, bantering about what does this mean, made in God's image, and they have all these different things. Um, ultimately, my take on it, uh, let's read the plain reading of Scripture and not uh, speculate uh, a ton. So let's look at it. Made in God's image. Well, what can we do that's different than, every, than, than the rest of creation, right? We can think for ourselves. We can read, write. We can speak clearly and communicate in a way that no, nothing else can. We have reason. We can logically think through things. We're creative. We can creatively build. We don't just have one small portion of things, right? Beavers can be creative and making a dam, right? That's about it. That's about all they got, right? I mean, praise God for the beavers, right, I guess. But, I mean, that's, that's as far as they're going to go, right? Well, we could come up with that and far more, right? That's, it doesn't stop there for us. We have mental faculties that helps us see and know and understand God, that we can know and love him, that we can choose to love him uh, when we're um, redeemed uh, in Christ. So all these things take place. Right? Remain in God's image. We stand above the rest of creation. He declared it to be very good. And we should, again, seek to glorify him, right? We should seek to glorify him because we are made in his image. And under the new covenant, I'm kind of jumping ahead out of the garden, but under the new covenant, we are to represent Christ, Right? We are to bear Christ's image. We are, over time, in our sanctification, to look more and more 
like Christ, which is the Holy Spirit's work in us throughout our life. Some more things, again, about God's image, right? Thinking creatively, which we, I mentioned that already, but just think about this. An electrician has to be pretty creative as far as wiring a house, right? You can't just walk in there and just run some wires, right? I mean, you could, I guess. You're going to run into some issues. Same thing with plumbing, right? You've got to map out where everything's going to go. Yeah, I mean, there is some creativity in drawing it up and then executing it. There's creativity in making music and singing and writing music, painting a picture, building a car, building a house, all these different things, right? We don't have to be an artist to be creative, but we are creative in some form or fashion. You can be creative with math. You know, those math wizards out there that can just do creative things with math that seem fake but aren't, you know, like putting letters with math. I don't know. Um, just kidding. But seriously, though, you can be creative with that. Regardless, right, made in God's image, we have a lot of things that the way, in the way that God has made us that puts us above the rest of creation. Now, let's keep going. So, notice, look back with me at verse 28 as we keep thinking through this. Verse 28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, see, this, this was the, the initial command, right? God, God created Adam and Eve, God created man. He said, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. So again, there's a ton that can be unpacked with those, every word in that sentence, or that, yeah, however many sentences that is, we'll near here or there. I don't have my degree in language, so we'll see. Um, but regardless, right, there's so much that can be unpacked. But that initial word, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I mentioned earlier the, our view of the origins of the world and our view of, of this, of, of Scripture, will determine how we view various things, right? We listed some of them off. Well, one of them I mentioned was children, right? The, the church should have a distinct, you know, view of children that is different from everyone else, from, from this text as well as from really the, all of Scripture, um, you could argue. Uh, but we're going to camp out here. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God commanded us as married couples, those of us that are married, to pursue and to, and to honor and to desire children. Now, we, we should be out breeding the rest of the other groups, right? Like, I'm just, I'm just being honest. We should, right? The God is first and foremost for his glory, right? And a way to do that is to make more image bearers of God's glory and to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, right? Just think about this. So marriage, right? Man, woman, uh, we, we're going to get to that in a minute, but we're going to cover it now, I guess. Marriage. So we, we, we learn in Ephesians 5 that marriage is a representation of the gospel, right? It's a representation of how Christ loved the church. And so God ordained children, procreation, more of us to have babies, uh, to, for them to grow up in a home of two people who are representatives that bear God's image, that are seeking to be faithful to God. They are supposed to see God through them through the parents, which is a daunting task for all of the parents here and future parents, right? It is. But that's, that's how it's supposed to be. They should see us as parents or future parents 
as the Lord, like not as the Lord, but they should see the Lord in us, right? They should see his image in us as we raise them up, making disciples that way. Now, under the new covenant, right, the, and after the fall, there, there are a lot of, um, you know, there are situations where, with infertility, there are, infer- you know, there are situations like that that make it very challenging or impossible to have biological children. And if that's the case, us as a church need and must and will be with, with you through that. And that is a reality as a part of the fall and the brokenness that we have in the world that, that we have to deal with and that is here um, for, all, for, for all of us. Um, but ultimately though, the Lord values disciple making and disciple making specifically with children as well. And so that part of that is naturally overflowing in our procreation as married people and as well as through foster care, through adoption and through other means as well is also extremely important. So to wrap this portion up, we should all be pursuing as, as married people, we should ask, be asking the Lord, Lord, how many do you want us to have or can we have them? And, and just have the open heart towards children. And if not, then foster care, adopt. there's other ways that we can seek the Lord in that. But the biggest thing is having a heart for kids. And so a lot of you aren't married, a lot of you are in college, a lot of you are young, and that's great. But just having a heart and appreciation for children, for making more children, for loving on children, and for raising children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is key. Or maybe you're retired. Whatever the case may be, wherever part of life that you're in, all of us have a place in this to faithfully walk in raising up kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and whatever that looks like. So I just want to encourage all of us, including me and my wife, right, to pursue however many kids the Lord will allow us to have because they are a blessing to us. Whether that's through biological kids, whether that's through adoption, whether that's through foster care, however that is, we should seek to do that. And I want to make a quick note because we do have a lot of college students in here and then we're going we're gonna to move on to the, to the rest of the part and then we'll wrap up. The argument, who in here has heard the environmental argument against having a lot of kids? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Most of the room. Well, I say good. Most of the room. So most of you have heard it. So good thing I'm going to talk about it. So, right. Um, so in that argument, and I'm going to briefly say it, and then we're going to, we're going to keep going. Right. They say, the environmentalists, that we should have less kids because we're rapidly filling the earth and we're going to have problems, blah, blah, blah. Look, look, back, um, look back with me at verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It doesn't say fill it to halfway. It doesn't say to fill it a quarter of the way or to get as close as possible or fill it until the environmentalist experts tell us that we should stop. It says, fill the earth. By my calculation, we haven't filled it up yet. So let's get started, right? Um, So in other words, in short, that argument is null and void. Fill the earth. That's what it says. Let's, let's read it, okay? Fill the earth. So, now I'm not saying that, yes, there's environmental things to consider, sure, but it says fill the earth. So, I think, I think God's got things under control as far as the um, ecological understanding, environmental understanding. So, when you're in your environmental science class, if you've already taken it or if you're about to take it, and they tell you all these crazy things, fill the earth. All right. I promise I'll move faster on the rest. So number two, marriage, we covered that briefly already. Uh, It's very clear 
one man, one woman in marriage glorifies God. It's the way God created it to be and praise the Lord for it. Now this one, again, I think we all have a, an understanding of this, of what's true and what's right, but with all the culture that we're in, everything coming against us is, is challenging, right? Like we're having issues around the country with the whole gamut of L LGBTQ of things, right? Um, it's all around, but regardless, we see here in the beginning, in the Bible, the way God created male and female and the way that he made them in complementary roles to each other to love one another and to glorify God in all that they do. And we should rest in that. We should trust in God's goodness in that and his purpose in that despite what the world tells us, despite the pressures that we get from elsewhere and despite anything else that comes up. God made man and woman for each other, for his glory. And this manifests itself in procreation and life. It manifests itself in a lot of ways. Um, I'm not, yeah, we're not gonna go there, but it does, it works, right? Things work and babies come, so it works. Uh, and that's nature testifying to the God's goodness and his creation and the way he made it to be. All right, number three, work. Look at verse 15 in chapter one. Chapter one, verse 15 of Genesis. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Adam and Eve, work is a pre-fall topic, issue, you know, whatever you want to call it, right? They're called here. God put them in the garden to work it and keep it before the fall. So work is not, we're not punished to go work because of the fall. Now, work is made more challenging, right? Thorns and thistles and such uh, that make things um, pointy and more challenging than it should be. But regardless, we're made to work. So as believers, right, we should glorify God in our work. We should embrace whatever work it is that we have, whether that's going to school and being a student, whether that's owning a business, whether that's staying home and raising kids, whether that's going to be a teacher, whether that's construction, electrical, whatever it may be that you do, we should seek to honor God in it. We should seek to work hard and work diligently to glorify God in our work. Now, work is a pain sometimes, right, because of sin, which we'll read about next week, uh, so try not to go there. Um, there's uh, issues, right? You have the sin of us. We have the sin of others. We have the, just the simple fact that everything is, the world is broken in sin, right? So it makes pain, work a bit of a pain sometimes. But regardless, we should seek to glorify God in it. Work is a good and right thing. So this disease that's going through America right now of people just not working and wanting government handouts and to just sit at home and not do anything is sin, and we should have no part in it, period. We should work. We should desire meaningful employment, and we should go to work glorifying God in all things. Number four, almost done. Delight and pleasure. This is the good part, or all of it's good, but delight and pleasure, right? which can sound a little funny, but the word for Eden in Hebrew is associated with words that mean delight, pleasure, enjoyment, and pleasantness. Like, that sounds pretty nice, right? The garden of delight, pleasure, enjoyment, pleasantness, like thinking about it that way. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Like being in the garden where all things are good, where you're with the Lord, that you're enjoying the good things that God gave us, and we're embracing it together. Right? God gave us eyes to see God, to see his creation, he gave us a mouth and a tongue to be able to taste food, the good food that he's given us, ears to hear, the river flowing, the rivers flowing there, other sounds, other, you know, human beings that we can talk with and love on and encourage and they can encourage us. We can smell the wonderful smells in the garden and in life. He gave us all these faculties 
to enjoy him and enjoy what he has created. Like, God is good, and he is the good giver of all good things. And we should be reminded of that, that this, this was good. It is good. It's been broken in sin, yes, which we kept it like this elephant in the room, right? It's broken in sin, but regardless, it's still good, and God is still good. And he gave us all these faculties and all these things so that we could love him and we could know him and glorify him in all things and enjoy his creation. Have good food, right? Be thankful for the Lord for it. Go out and enjoy God's creation on a hike. Go do things with friends. Like the, We should work hard for the Lord, but then we should also enjoy the creation he's given us because he has made it for us to enjoy. But it should be enjoying it in him because he alone can satisfy the desires like we talked about earlier. So do you view God as the great giver of all good things? When you think about God, do you think about that question? that God is the good, great giver of all things and he desires for you to know and love him and he desires you to have joy in this life. This life shouldn't be a drag, right? It should be joyful. It's gonna be hard. We're gonna have suffering. We're gonna have persecution. We're gonna have challenges, but it should be joyful and it should be a delight. So as we wrap up, Piper famously has said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So as we go and enjoy the good gifts that God has given us, seeking to glorify him in all that we do, Paul left us with it or said this in 1 Corinthians 10:31. It says, "So whether we whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God." So as we go out from here, as we get ready to to wrap up and, and go into a time of communion, let us think about that. What does that look like in your life? for us to all go out and to glorify God in all that we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. Because that is, that is our purpose. It is to proclaim the excellencies of him and to glorify him in all things. So as we go into time of communion, as we land the plane, well, this is a special time for us as baptized believers because while we did camp out here in the garden for the most part of this sermon, that the reality of sin is real, that we are broken in our sin, which we'll talk about more next week. Uh, but Christ came. God didn't leave us dead in our sins and trespasses. Christ came. Like we read earlier in, first, in, in John 1, 14, and the word became flesh. That he didn't leave us dead in our sins. So as believers, we go into this time of communion recognizing and remembering and savoring all that God did for us, that Christ came, the Son of God came, lived the perfect sinless life, died the death that we couldn't, and then was raised on the third day, right? Praise the Lord for that. And that one day, right, we can look ahead to what is to come, that what is to come is greater than what was in the garden, as great as the garden was, this isn't the only life that we have. We have that hope in Christ that he will return and that we can go forward and continue to look to all the great things that God has promised us beyond this life. But until we get there, let us be faithful and obedient as we go. So as we go into time of communion, it's a time for, if you're baptized believers, it's a time for us to come and reflect on all that Christ did together as a church. If you're not a baptized believer, my hope and prayer is that you, you would see and understand the Lord through this. And if you have questions, I'll be in the back. The elders will be in the back uh, if you have questions about it. Um, but I'll leave you, I've said a lot of things. Well, I'll leave you with this. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, uh, first question, what is the chief end of man? The answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So let us go 
and do just that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you so much for this time that we were able to come together in your word. That we were able to read in Genesis and in other parts of your scriptures. Lord, help us to see and understand that you are good and that you are the good giver of all good things and that you have made us and you have made your creation for your glory. That, and that is a good thing. That is the, the best thing for us, that you have made all things for your glory. Help us embrace that truth. Help us understand that truth. And I pray, Lord, that you will stir our affections for you, that you, you will help us to see your goodness and your kindness to us, both in creation and in our own lives, and that in turn we will love you more for it, and that we will seek you for it, and that we will desire you for it, and we will desire you more than we will desire any of the other cares of this world that get in the way and that try to pull us um, just closer into its grasp and away from you. Help us go out from here and to glorify you in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray, amen.